The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're going back to the atomic era to explore the lesser-known history of the Manhattan Project. And later, we'll spend a little quality time with the Curie family. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. I'm here with Denise Kiernan, a working writer for nearly 20 years. Denise's work has been published in the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Village Voice, Ms. Magazine, Reader's Digest, Discover, and many more publications. She has authored several popular history titles, including Signing Their Lives Away, Signing Their Rights Away, and Stuff Every American Should Know. She's here today to talk about her most recent book, the New York Times bestseller, The Girls of Atomic City, the untold story of the women who helped win World War II. Denise, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So everyone knows about the Manhattan Project. It's something we learn about in school, uh, the bombs, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, the fallout, the Cold War. But I know I had no idea of the actual scope of the project until I read your book. This was a huge undertaking. It was mind-boggling, the amount of manpower, woman power, the resources, the corporate institutions involved, the government resources, the number of, of states and countries that played a part in this project. And when you talk about folks learning about it in school, I feel like in high school it's glossed over fairly quickly. But what you mentioned is pretty much what we hear. There was a project, it made the bomb, the bombs were dropped, and then we move on to what happened after World War II. And what's missing is the, the epic, epic scale of, of this project. And what has happened now is you constantly hear people referring to the Manhattan Project as emblematic of some sort of all-out effort. I do a little uh, search all the time for Manhattan Project. And, and what I always come across is amazing. It's, we need a Manhattan Project for breast cancer. We need a Manhattan Project for clean energy. We need a Manhattan Project for, and the list goes on and on. And I think it is re, re, a reflection of that tremendous scale uh, of that project. So your book in particular, you have decided to tell the story of the project by anchoring it in the story of the women who worked on it. Um, why did you choose to frame the story this way? I've always been a fan of this period of history and, and felt as though, you know, I knew a fair amount about the Manhattan Project specifically, but we've always been told the story really in a very sort of top-down manner, from very much from the perspective of uh, the Nobel Prize winning scientists, uh, the decision makers, the generals, all of those sorts of folks, those are the voices that have told this story over the years. And yet there were tens of thousands of other people, for lack of a better phrase, you know, normal people. And um, many, many, many of them were women, some of them fresh out of high school. These people were a, a key part of the Manhattan Project. Without them, nothing would have happened. And yet we had not really heard about what the experience was like for them. And I thought, well, you know, I want to hear this story and maybe share this story with people who have maybe, you know, not learned that much about the Manhattan Project. But I really want to show it from this perspective. And I want to see it through the eyes of, of these people who were not in positions of power. 
You say in the book the project liked high school girls, especially those from rural backgrounds. <laughs> when you just take the sentence out like that, it sounds like some kind of creepy college. It does actually, and I. <laughs> it's not as creepy as it sounds. <laughs> there are uh, there were a number of places where different individuals involved in higher levels of the project, among them, uh, you know, General Groves, uh, who who talked about how smart high school girls, especially in that period of time, had, you know, spent most of their lives doing what they were told and they did not question authority. And those were two things that they wanted from the larger workforce. They wanted them to be easily trainable and they wanted them to do exactly what they were told without asking any questions. And they found that whenever they were working with, you know, PhDs or men or women or whatever, there was this incredible, you know, kind of curiosity. Well, why are we doing it this way? Well, why don't we do that? Well, how? they did not want any of that. They, they wanted somebody who would go, how do I do it? This way. You always do it this way. Okay, that's the way I'll do it. That's what they wanted. That's what they thought the key to productivity would be, and also the key to keeping the real secret of the project under wraps, since these folks didn't know what they were working on. We knew, of course, the project included scientists and politicians and generals and the military, um, but I don't think I ever really thought about the janitorial staff, and yet one of the people you follow is one of the janitors. That's right. Katie Strickland, um, African-American woman who came up from Alabama with her husband. Uh, Her husband worked construction. Katie was a janitorial worker. And those were two of the jobs that uh, African-American workers were permitted to have in Oak Ridge. They were because there were African-American scientists um, who were not allowed to come to Oak Ridge because it was totally segregated. And so housing was segregated, recreation was segregated. The African-American husbands and wives were not allowed to live together. They weren't allowed to bring their children with them. Um, And they were limited to essentially janitorial construction and uh, domestic work while they were there. And I, I... I'm so fortunate I was able to meet and spend time with Katie and talk to her about her experience there because it is unique and it is different from uh, the experience of the white workers, which is why it needs to be shared. And it was it was remarkable being able to to talk to her. And I'm so I'm so appreciative that she spent so much of her time talking about what was, you know, clearly Um, often a very difficult moment in our life. So your book primarily focuses on Oak Ridge, Tennessee, um, the sort of secret city uh, that was part of this project. Can you kind of set us up for that? What was the city and what did they do there? Well, when we think of the Manhattan Project, for the most part, most people immediately think of Los Alamos, New Mexico. Uh, Oppenheimer was there, you know, Enrico Fermi was there. That's where all the all the big fancy wonderful brains that we've learned about over the years, they were they were in Los Alamos. And that that's the town that folks often think of when we think of the Manhattan Project. There were actually three main cities as far as the project was concerned. Los Alamos, uh also Hanford in Washington state, 
and Oak Ridge in Tennessee, where my book primarily takes place. And what most people don't realize is that Oak Ridge was the administrative headquarters for the entire Manhattan Project. And Oak Ridge was also the most populous of the three main Manhattan Project sites. Oak Ridge was a town that did not exist before late 1942. The government came in, moved about a thousand families off their land, and started making what would eventually be called Oak Ridge. It had a, many names. It was called Site X. It was, you know, at one point called the Kingston Demolition Works, uh, the Reservation, uh, Clinton Engineer Works. They first broke ground on what would become Oak Ridge in late 1942. By the middle of 1945, there were 75 to 80,000 people living there, and the place was using more electricity than New York City and had one of the largest bus systems in the United States. But of course, it wasn't on a map and would not be on a map until, you know, 1949. And uh, the majority of the people living and working there had no idea what they were doing. Oak Ridge's primary function was making fuel for the atomic bombs. So while the bomb was being designed in Los Alamos, the fuel for the bomb, the enriched uranium for the, the bomb that the first bomb detonated, the one detonated over Hiroshima, that was being made or enriched, as they say, in Oak Ridge. You're listening to Science for the People with Rochelle Saunders, and we're talking about the lesser-known behind-the-scenes parts of the Manhattan Project with Denise Kiernan, author of the best-selling book, The Girls of Atomic City, The Untold Story of the Women Who Helped Win World War II. So right from the beginning of the book, you steep us in the kind of secrecy we can expect from the Oak Ridge area. You follow one of the women as she travels to Oak Ridge, only she didn't know where she was going or what she was going to do when she got there. When I decided, I, I interviewed many people. When I chose the women I was going to focus on in the book, I wanted to balance their experiences and I wanted to balance their backgrounds. And for me, Celia had such a great story arriving in Oak Ridge. She had also worked for the Manhattan Project in New York City, though she didn't know that. She just thought she was a government secretary. And when she was asked to move to the new offices, she was told this was going to be, you know, this is very good. She's done well. Could they, they were going to move offices. Would she want to come? And she says, sure. And she asks, naturally, as one does, where are we going? And they said, well, you know, we can't get into too many specifics about that. But, you know, it'll be in the South. <laughs> and she goes, okay. And, you know, she says, well, you know, how long am I going to be there? Well, you know, six months, maybe nine. <laughs> okay. And what am I going to be doing? Basically what you've been doing, but, you know, that could change. <laughs> she said, okay, six months, maybe nine, doing the same thing, sort of possibly someplace. I'm not quite sure where I'm going. And she said, well, if I don't know where I'm going, you know, how am I going to get there? Which is, you know, fair question. And they said, you know, oh, we'll pick you up. She was staying with her sister. We'll pick you up from your sister's house. We'll take you to the train station, all your tickets and everything. Your sleeper car will all be taken care of. Somebody on the train, there'll be other people on the train. Someone will tell you all when you're getting off. And then someone will be there to pick you up and take you to your final destination. And off she went. And uh, 
it was, uh, you know, it, it, it was just fascinating. And, you know, there are so many stories like this. I mean, one of the hardest things about doing this book was choosing which, who to, you know, who to use, who not to use, what to keep, what not to keep. I interviewed a man who, you know, was getting ready to, to ship out. And, uh, you know, he was a, he was a GI at the time, was getting ready to ship out and he gets a tap on the shoulder and says, you've been reassigned, gets put on a train and told, you know, get off in Knoxville, call this number, don't talk to anyone. And that's all he's told, and he's put on a train. You do a great job of reminding us uh, regularly of how much secrecy the people of Oak Ridge had completely filling their lives. Um, one of the, the interesting things is the use of the code word tube alloy uh, instead of uranium, which you use throughout the entire book. And this really creates some tension, even though we all know the big spoiler at the end. We Yes, we all know the big spoiler at the end. And when I wrote the book and, and organized it and set it up, I wanted to create what I felt like were two different worlds. You had the world of Oak Ridge and the world of the women, which was steeped in secrecy and in not knowing. They did not know, you know, the scope of what was going on. But then I also wanted um, these other chapters that were a little more science-based and kind of project-based, the chapters I call the tubaloid chapters, because I wanted to make sure that people did understand what was going on behind the scenes. This might be the only book that somebody ever reads about the Manhattan Project. So I wanted to make sure that they, they knew what the stakes were, even if the main characters in the book, the women, did not. Even the scientists that I interviewed said that once they started working on the project, even if they knew they were working with uranium, they were flat out told, don't call it that. Call it tubaloy. Some people called it product. Some people called it, you know, in different forms, you know, might have called it yellow cake, depending on the process they were performing in the lab. And so I thought it was so interesting that even the people who knew what they were working with were calling it tubaloy. And I did not want to use the word bomb until the end of the book, when the bomb itself is revealed and when that language was was freed up, because that was a that was an interesting moment, even for uh, the people who did have an idea of what was going on, the, the scientists that that was an interesting point in their kind of journey with this project when they were able to speak freely again to a certain extent. I just loved the idea of keeping as as much code and as much uh, secrecy in the book as possible until that veil is lifted. I just want to read a, a little brief excerpt here so that the people listening will be able to understand the extent to which the everyday people working in the building did not know what they were doing. You wanted your R high. That was better than Q. There was a charge near the bottom of the D unit. Something was vaporized. There was a Z. The E-box caught everything. Open the shutters. Maximize the beam. Supervisor spoke of striking a J. M-voltage. G-voltage. K-voltage. And if you got your M-voltage up and your G-voltage up, then product would hit the birdcage in the E-box at the top of the unit, and if that happened, you'd get the Q and the R you wanted. How do you even perform a job when that, <laughs> when that is the information you are provided, is what I want to know. The passage you read describes what life was like in the Y-12 factory which was the home of the electromagnetic separation process. And a lot of the young women operating these machines that were called calutrons 
these were, you know, a lot of them had been recruited right out of, you know, high schools in rural Tennessee. What's astounding to me and quite amazing from a managerial standpoint is that they managed to train these women to operate these machines so well, and they had no idea what these machines were making or what they were doing. It was inc- it's an incredible feat, really. And, you know, they told me you just kind of got used to it. You know, you want the needle to stay within a certain, you know, range. You look, stare at this needle. If it goes too far this way, turn this knob to the left. If it goes too far that way, turn this knob to the right. Don't flip this switch until, you know, the M or the G reads a certain thing. I mean, they had all of these methods in place and they had been trained so well that they knew exactly how to do their job without knowing the specifics of the purpose of that job. It's fascinating. It's incredibly fascinating. And their productivity was really high. It was. And we go back to that question you, you know, you asked earlier about, you know, why the project was so fascinated with high school girls. And there was even a uh, competition. The girls didn't really know about the competition, but (laughs) there was a competition Ernest Lawrence, who is the brilliant mind behind um, the cyclotron and the eventually the calutrons, uh, he had originally thought, you know, they would bring PhDs out to operate these machines. And then they just, the manpower they needed was, was far too great. And um, Colonel, he was Colonel then, he retired as a general, but then Colonel Nichols, Kenneth Nichols, said, no, I think we can do this with, you know, highly trained young women, you know, from local, you know, and we've got a lot of them here who are, you know, looking for jobs. And, you know, Ernest Lawrence just could not believe that these hillbillies, as he referred to them, could possibly do better than his PhDs. So they sort of had an unofficial little contest where the PhDs operated the calutrons for a shift and the and the young women operated the calutrons for a shift and then they checked the productivity and and Colonel Nichols wrote in his book he said he just couldn't believe that you know his PhDs had been beaten by the hillbillies but but he said it made it did not surprise him because of what we were talking about before the PhDs were I should do this but maybe if I tweak it this way it might do this that or the other thing and the women just did exactly what they were told and um, didn't mess with anything. And they ended up actually doing a better job of, of working these quite elaborate machines. This is Science for the People. We're speaking with Denise Kiernan about her book, The Girls of Atomic City, the untold story of the women who helped win World War II. Stay tuned for more Science for the People after these messages. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. You're listening to Science for the People. I'm your host today, Rochelle Saunders. I'm here with Denise Kiernan to talk about her most recent book, The Girls of Atomic City, the untold story of the women who helped win World War II. 
I didn't realize how much we actually didn't know about nuclear piles uh, and the whole process during this project. I mean, it was all kind of like laying the tracks ahead of a train that's just coming up behind you really fast. Um, (laughs) Even things like when some of the higher ups asked how much uranium they were going to need, the scientists couldn't really give them an answer. This project moved at such a rapid pace. I mean, if you think about it, when you do something today, there's research and there's development and there's planning and you get everything. This, they start building towns and they haven't even designed the bomb yet, but they're building entire towns and they're, you know, they're not sure how much fuel they're going to need, but they're building the factories and putting people in them to make the fuel. And so, they just, I mean, they were flying by the seat of their pants in a lot of ways. And they just, they threw a tremendous amount of, of energy and money and uh, people and brain power uh, at, this, at this project. But yeah, it was always what was interesting to me. And one of the reasons that I wanted to have those little tiny chapters between the stories of the women uh, to talk about the project was, you know, one of the plants they were building, the the K-25 plant, which, you know, was the largest building under one roof in the world. They're, they're building this plant and they're, you know, getting close to, to finish with it. And they're still not even entirely clear that the process this plant is designed for is going to work the way they want it to. There were definitely a lot of a lot of risks taken, and um, through the kind of money and commitment behind uh, this project, in a way that we just you just don't see today. Well, that's the thing we say, sort of making fuel for the atomic bombs, but they didn't even entirely have a full understanding of of how to make the fuel. That process was still underway. Yes and no. I mean, they had a pretty good idea. The electromagnetic separation process, for example, seemed to be the surest route uh, at the time. Um, But it had just never been done on this scale. So they were like, okay, we're going to do it on this scale. But while they're doing that, they're thinking, but this gaseous diffusion process should be so much more efficient. And that's, you know, where they, the K-25 plant. But while they're building the plant, this, this barrier that was so important that they needed for this process was just eluding them. But they just kept going. But they were sort of like hedging their bets. Well, we still have the electromagnetic process uh, over here going. And that was actually responsible for the majority of the enriched uh, uranium. And But there was a lot of, um, yeah, we're not entirely sure if this is going to come through in time, so let's keep doing this other thing. We've never had, we didn't think we'd have this many calutrons operating. Well, we need more. And um, there were a lot of adjustments being made on the fly, you know, but they never stopped. They never gave up. They were, I mean, I, you know, you, you have to say that they, they wanted to figure out a way to make it work. So why so many people? Is it because that the process is so difficult or it's there's so little created in the enrichment process? Or do we just need that much to create an atomic bomb? It was more you're dealing with such small amounts of a huge amount of effort for a small amount of material. You had to have people not only manning these plants, but you have to remember an entire town built up around this place because these plants operated 
24 hours a day. So you had to have dormitories and you had to have cafeterias and you had to have a place for people to shop and you had to have buses and you had to have a hospital and you had to have everything that you think of that goes into um, a town of 75,000 people, which is not a, you know, which is a small, not a major city, but that is a very decent sized town. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And these plants, like I said, operated 24 hours a day. So a lot of these facilities, also the cafeterias and some of the recreation facilities were also open 24 hours a day. So it was really, uh, you know, required a huge effort to keep not just the plants going, um, but to keep the town that supported the people who were working in the plants going. It was, you know, a very stressful situation. And, and, you know, living in a town that operates around the clock can be tiring. If you lived in a dorm, there would be, you know, people working shifts going in and out all day and all night, because every night somebody somewhere was working the graveyard shift. So you had people going in and out all the time. So they knew that if people were working hard, they wanted to make a community that allowed them to play as well because turnover was an issue and they wanted to try and keep people there because, you know, having to constantly hire and rehire, that affects productivity. So they came up with all of these activities, these these dances and bowling teams and softball and, and golf, I mean, all of this sort of stuff so that uh, people would be as happy there as possible. And of course, there had to be schools for the kids. Some people moved there with their families. So there were schools and teachers and, you know, people who needed to get textbooks. And it just, it went on and on. And it was, you know, that's a huge undertaking. So it's not just about the plants. It's about really maintaining uh, a functioning city. A functioning city with a level of secrecy <laughs> that yes. is astonishing. And the guards, and <laughs> you had to have the guards, and the, yeah, you and the sit, passes, and, the, and, and oh, the security it's... force. Yes, of course. Yeah. So, how did the government pay for all of this? Oh well, you know, things were uh, hidden, in you know, hidden in the budget. There were some people in Congress who were taken aside and and asked to help you know, hide money in the appropriations budget, you know, it was war. So, you know, if the war department comes in and says we need, you know, X amount for facilities and they could have, you know, they they could use these terms that weren't very specific about what the project was, was working on. And they, you know, they had some friends on the appropriations committee that helped get that stuff through. But, you know, it was wartime and people are being told, well, you know, we need these trucks or we need these buses to transport such and such. They don't know if the buses are going to a secret city or if they're going to, uh, you know, a training camp. But, you know, by the end of the, we're talking about $2 billion, $2 billion in 1945 would be an awful lot of money today. Yeah, that's and uh, it's you know, and they kept they, it, but they it just sort of kind of kept adding on, and you know the scale kept getting bigger. When they first started building Oak Ridge, the original plan was for thirteen thousand people. Huh. So I mean, they blew past that fast, you know, pretty quickly. One of the parts of the story that I always find so so fascinating is. Um, after President Roosevelt died and uh, President Truman gets brought in to take over the presidency, and of course one of his 
first briefings, Secretary Boris Stimson was like, I've got to talk to you about this little project we have going <laughs> on. I really think you, and he's like, well, we're trying to get settled. He said, no, I think you need to make time for me, you know. And Truman wrote his diaries, you know, or the archives of his diaries are available. And you want to talk about just having your mind blown. And what's interesting is he had been, he was one of the people who was always sort of, where's this money going? You know, why are we spending that? You know, he was the, one of those guys who was always asking those questions. And then he found out where all the money was going. And uh, it was quite a moment for him. One of my favorite parts of the book, actually, is when they have to borrow silver from the U.S. Treasury. Yes, yes. They needed these giant magnets in the uh, Y-12 plant we discussed earlier uh, for the calutrons. It's the electromagnetic process. It requires tremendous, tremendous magnets. It was hard to get various metals during uh, the war because a lot of things were being uh, rationed for munitions, and so they did. They had to borrow it from from the Treasury. And they actually, over the years, paid all of it back. So did they, they return the silver or they did they did. just pay? Oh, really? They did. The, they, you know, things were dismantled. And I forget, there's some minuscule amount that was not returned. But I mean, stunning how much of it was, how much of it was returned. Yeah, because like we're not talking, you know, a suitcase full of silver. We're talking it was like 6,000 tons of silver. It was an incredible amount. Like it was truckloads of silver. The Secretary of the Treasury was like, what? Oh, no, these magnets were enormous. There is a picture. The pictures in the book are wonderful, and I have to make sure to mention the photographer, Ed Westcott. And it's because Ed was the official photographer for the War Department in Oak Ridge during World War II. And it's because I came across one of Ed Westcott's photos that I first got interested in the story. His photographs, I mean, a lot of them are just beautiful, but it's an incredible record of what went on in Oak Ridge. And he has amazing photos of of the calutrons and the magnets. And you just, you can't, it's hard to get an idea of how, how big the things were until you see like a guy standing next to one of them. So it's, you know, I, I highly recommend, there's a wonderful Tumblr, the photos of Ed Westcott. And it's just tremendous to be able to flip through there and look at his work and and kind of put images with the stories that are in the book. You're tuned in to Science for the People. And today we're talking about the dawning of the atomic era in World War II with best-selling author Denise Kiernan, who wrote The Girls of Atomic City, the untold story of the women who helped win World War II. So during this whole process, there's secrecy, there's a ton of money. There's also some really questionable stuff going on because this process is moving so fast. Um, and I'm thinking in particular about the story of Eb Cade. Um, Eb Cade was an African-American construction worker. And he was uh, traveling in to go to work one morning and was in a very bad car accident, him and some of the guys he was traveling to work to. And, you know, they were taken to the hospital and uh, he had a, he had a, among other injuries, he had a, you know, a broken leg and, you know, was banged up. What Eb didn't know was that what was also going on, you know, and had been going on was as, as they began to work with some of these uh, materials. Now Oak Ridge was about the enrichment of uranium. Hanford in Washington was uh, making plutonium in their reactors. And there were a lot of questions, especially about what the what a tolerable dose of plutonium would be 
for humans because they took you know they took precautions in in all of these plants, but there were still a lot of question marks about what would be the effects of again doing this on this scale because again none of this stuff had ever been used on this scale. So they, you know, had talked about, you know, in various memos doing um, trials on humans. And so Eb Cade became a participant in a trial he knew nothing about. And he was injected with uh, plutonium without his consent. And they did it while they had him in the hospital. I mean, if I, I remember the, when I got a hold of the memos in the archives, it was something like he ended up in the hospital, I want to say something like two days bef- after this shipment of small shipment of plutonium had arrived. And so they decided to inject him and then they studied his feces and his urine, uh, pulled his teeth to see if the plutonium had made it there. How long did it take for the body to excrete it, etc.? They waited to set his legs because they wanted to, I guess, see if it, you know, had gotten into the marrow. And this was part of, you know, there were a number of uh, radiation experiments that went on over the years, uh, some with consent, some without consent, you know. And in the 90s, uh, while President Clinton was in office, there was a, I guess you'd call it a movement or whatever, to get all of these files uh, declassified and released. And you can actually find information about uh, human radiation experiments. Uh, they have the archives, most of them, online. And you can, uh, they interviewed doctors who were part of the processes. They, you know, got all the documents declassified. So they really wanted, you know, a, a lot of transparency about this very, um, you know, very questionable period in history. And um, Eb Cade was one of those one of those folks who was a part of those experiments. So the bomb is completed. It's used uh, and brings the end to World War II. Um, we have heard a lot from scientists and from the politicians who are involved and from some of the military personnel, personnel involved, how they sort of feel about the project and the atomic weapon after the fact. Um, but what about these 70,000 people in Oak Ridge who, who knew they were working toward a victorious end to the war, but didn't necessarily know what they were working on? How do they feel about the work that they did in Oak Ridge now that they know what it was for? One of the things that I wanted to do in the book was to make sure that when the bomb was dropped in the book, that I could capture as as well as I could how people felt on that day, like at that moment in time. Because to me, this population is in, very unique. I don't know what it's like to live in a world without nuclear weapons. I've lived my whole life knowing about the bomb and what that means and the dist- and I can get instant images in my head of all the horrors and and radiation sickness and fallout shelters and nuclear winter. That language didn't exist in their world. So, when I talked to folks about how they felt when they first heard about it, you know, the the first wave of information was, you know, really just about there's this big new bomb 
And, you know, it looks like the tide's going to turn, you know, it's like, oh, okay. And then, you know, the president gives an address and specifically mentions the town of Oak Ridge. And they were just flabbergasted because, you know, a lot of them had just gotten used to not knowing what they were working on. So they're still sort of processing the information that, you know, their brothers and their husbands and folks might be coming home. This might actually be over. But now they're learning we were a part of the end of this. You know, a lot of people were very, very happy about that. Um, But it was a complex mix of emotions and also the the true devastation of the bomb and the aftermath was not known on August 6th when the first bomb was dropped. You know, nobody knew, oh, there's going to be radiation sickness for years. No one knew that. So a lot of the sort of stuff that we associate with the bomb, they learned over time. And, you know, the the mix of reactions, you know, was it was kind of one woman I talked to said, you know, it was kind of gut churning to think about all the devastation from this, you know, one particular bomb. Some people are like, you know, well, this is war and this is what people do in wars. Um, You know, and, and the debate got greater as time passed and there was distance from the event. But one woman I interviewed, um, Marty, she put it really kind of well. She said, I was so happy that the war was over because my brother was coming home. She goes, but at the same time, I was really sad because so many people died and I really like people. People were so glad that war was over, but only this population has had to deal with being a part of what ended that war. Everybody else could just be happy the war was over. But these these folks had to, you know, had to process those complex emotions, you know, however, however best they could. So what happened to Oak Ridge after the war? After the war came the Cold War. So there were weapons, <laughs> weapons to be paid. So, so same old, there. same old then. <laughs> same old, back to the back to the factory. Um, actually, um, the K-25 plant started to uh, take on a much bigger role in uh, uranium enrichment. Uranium continued to be enriched. Weapons continued uh, to be made. Uh, this is, you know, when, you know, like I said, we're in the, in the Cold War and people are starting to, you know, stockpile their weapons. You know, the Russian, the Russians shortly there, you know, after, you know, detonated their first uh, atomic tests. So, you know, then we knew they had them and then, you know, and, and that whole ball started rolling. There also started a lot of uh, medical research. You know, nuclear medicine, a lot of it grew out of research done for the Manhattan Project. So a lot of medical research started to be done uh, in Oak Ridge after the war. You know, research about the effects of radiation, x-rays, of the effects of x-rays on um you know, when you, if a, you know, when the reason pregnant women shouldn't get x-rays, you know, all that sort of research, a lot of that stuff started to be done um, in Oak Ridge after the war as well. So you have this, the atomic age, which, you know, brought certainly a tremendous amount of destruction, but also ushered in some, some research and techniques that ended up being used to treat cancer and other things. Denise, thanks so much for coming by and talking about your book. Thank you so much for having me. If you want to learn more about Denise Kiernan or her book, The Girls of Atomic City, you can visit www.girlsofatomiccity.com, a link you'll be able to find on our website. 
scienceforthepeople.ca. Stay tuned. Science for the People will be back after the break. On the next episode of Science for the People, we're discussing taboo sexual practices and whether they're really as unusual as we think. Psychologist and author Jesse Baring returns to the show to talk about his newest book, Perv, The Sexual Deviant in All of Us. And we'll speak to Nicole Prouse, principal investigator at UCLA's Sexual Psychophysiology and Effective Neuroscience Laboratory, about her neurological study that raises doubts about self-reported sex addiction. That's next week on Science for the People, on your local radio station, or online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Today I'm here with Shelley Emling, senior editor at the Huffington Post. She previously was an editor at AOL and has also served for more than a dozen years as a foreign correspondent for the Cox newspaper chain, both in Europe and Latin America. Emling has written for The New York Times, USA Today, Fortune, The Wall Street Journal, The Times of London, and The Christian Science Monitor. Emling has also served for four years as a business reporter and the consumer affairs expert at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution newspaper. Her previous books include The Fossil Hunter and Your Guide to Retiring to Mexico, Costa Rica, and Beyond. Welcome to the show, Shelley. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much. So uh, there are several books out there about Marie Curie's great contributions to science, um, but yours is a bit different. It starts where most of them choose to stop, right after she wins her second Nobel Prize. Why did you choose to focus on the latter portion of Marie's life? Like you just said, there's been many books written about Marie Curie's uh, life, but mostly they focused on the early part of her life and her childhood and her remarkable collaboration with Pierre Curie, her husband, and I felt like people had ignored uh, somewhat her the second part of her life and her particularly her amazing um, relationship with her two daughters and so much that happened to her in her last part of her life, I just felt like a lot of that had been overlooked, and I really wanted to focus more on her as an adult woman and um, as a mother. And the book isn't even just about Marie. Um, the title, as it says in the title, it's about her daughters as well. And in fact, um, Marie Curie actually dies midway through the book. Um, spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> and you continue on tracing um, her children, Irene, Eve, and even to some extent her grandchildren. What encouraged you to do this? Well, when I initially talked to my publisher about writing a book about Marie Curie, um, I have to say I was skeptical about the idea. It was my publisher's idea. I thought, um, you know, there's been a lot written about her. I don't want to, you know, go over old territory. And then I happened to uh, get access to an uh, email address from Marie Curie's granddaughter, Helene, who lives in Paris. And she was very kind enough to write me back and uh, invite me to come over to Paris and meet with her. So I did that and spent a lovely day or two with uh, Marie Curie's granddaughter. And she told me a lot about her grandmother as a woman and a person and a grandmother and a mother. And she shared with me a lot of letters that Marie Curie had exchanged with her two daughters. And I have three children of my own. And I thought how this woman, Marie Curie, was such a great scientist, but she also managed to raise two daughters who were wildly successful in their own right, um, Irene, her daughter, went on to win a Nobel Prize herself. Her other daughter, Eve, was a famous uh, war correspondent and a writer who just died uh, not too long ago, a few years ago in New York City. And I just thought, wow, there's a lot here about Marie Curie. How did she manage to raise such two successful daughters while 
working nonstop as a scientist and, and without the help of a partner. Her husband, Pierre, died when her daughters were quite young. So Marie Curie actually raised her two daughters on her own. And there are at least two other people uh, that play a huge role in your book and that you follow extensively. Uh, one of them is Irene's husband, Frederick, um, and the I... other is the American writer, Missy Melody. So Melody gets nearly as much focus as Marie's daughter and yet isn't related to the family uh, by marriage or blood at all. Why did you focus on her? Well, because I thought she was um, also shed a new light on Marie Curie as a woman. And um, Missy was actually a famous journalist. She went to France to interview Marie Curie. Marie Curie didn't have a lot of good female friends. She, for some reason, was really taken with Missy and... Um, they struck up this beautiful friendship that lasted the entire lives of both women. And Missy said, I will help you um, raise money for you so you can continue your, your research, but I want you to come to the United States and inspire women here. And it's because of Missy that Marie Curie actually came to the United States for the first time. She had never been outside of Europe, but she made this trip to the United States. She toured the country. She visited women's colleges. She talked to young university students about how women need to go into science and study science and engineering and math, and was very inspirational. But it was all because of this friendship with this journalist that Marie Curie decided to come to the United States for the first time, and she actually came back again. And I found their friendship just fascinating and something that's been overlooked in a lot of the of the previous biographies of Marie Curie's life. Marie Curie was not the only woman doing uh, cutting-edge science at this time, and not even the only woman in her field doing cutting-edge science. Um, but she was still a comparative rarity at the time. Was she aware of her status as a feminist icon? Did she actively promote herself as a feminist in this arena? She did not, um, and I don't think she was aware of how famous she was until she came to the United States for the first time, because in France she was not held up um, as such a celebrity as she was here. And um, in fact, when Missy, the, the American journalist, interviewed her, and she found out from Marie Curie that she was unable to raise money in Europe to continue her scientific research, Missy, the journalist, was appalled and said, I can't believe this. I mean, you're a Nobel Prize winner, and you can't even raise money in your own country to continue your research. Come to America we will help raise money for you and, you know, raise your status. And she came to America and she was literally, uh, you know, tracked down like a, a celebrity, like, um, you know, a modern-day Beyonce or something. She Everywhere she went, people wanted her autograph. She had no idea that young women across the United, the United States looked up to her in this way. And with Missy's help, this huge fundraising campaign was launched and a lot, quite a bit of money at the time was raised for Marie Curie, and she took that back to France and was able to continue her research. I was really surprised at the extent of her celebrity in, in America. And you actually, in the book, describe it as a sort of Beatle mania and compare it to <laughs> that sort of chaos that erupted in the U.S. What was it about Marie Curie that captured the American people at the time, do you think? I think it was just the idea that this woman had lost her husband. You know, Pierre was... He was run over by a horse-drawn carriage. He died, you know, very tragically on the streets of Paris. And so leaving behind this young woman who, with these two little daughters, and she lost her own mother when she was quite young. So she was raised without a mother. Her father raised her. Then her husband died. She's raising these two little girls. I think she just had a sad story that people 
picked up on and related to, and they felt sorry for her, and they couldn't believe that she managed to accomplish all that she accomplished. So, and at the time, I'm not sure there were any comparable some you know women in that same situation in the United States for for women here to look up to and that had that status. I mean, she was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize. She won two Nobel Prizes. That was quite extraordinary at the time, and I think Americans were really quite taken by her and her what she'd accomplished. How much of the American idea of Marie Curie do you think was built up to an almost impossible standard? Uh, do you think that's the case? Do you think there's sort of a myth around Marie Curie? Yes, I think there is some, some of that. Um, she wasn't perfect. And, uh, you know, another spoiler alert, you'll see that in the first chapter, it talks about she has an affair with a married man. And so that uh, she has some trouble in France because of that. She also was also uh, often absent from her two daughters and was not always available to them. Even though they were quite successful, she was quite the workaholic and, you know, worked sometimes 18 hours a day. So she wasn't perfect, but I do think people in the United States did build some sort of myth around her. And a lot of that, I think, had to do with the journalist uh, Missy Maloney and her you know, writing so many huge stories about her and really promoting her so much in the United States because Marie Curie was Missy's idol and had been her for many years. A lot of the focus in the United States as well, especially while um, Marie Curie was was here that during that first trip, was really focused around the humanitarian and medical benefits of some of the scientific discoveries she had made. Right. Missy had written quite a bit about how, in her opinion, all this work could somehow cure cancer and benefit people health-wise, where Marie Curie never promoted herself that way and actually got quite mad at Missy for promoting her that way because she said I, she did science for science's sake and if there was a benefit, a health benefit to come out of it, it would be fine, but it wasn't the ultimate goal of Marie Curie to cure cancer. What's really interesting to me that really came out in your book was that the Curies never sort of jumped into wealth. They, for all of these scientific discoveries and the two Nobel Prizes, the Curie family, you know, lived through some really hard times. They lived through the Depression. They didn't always have a lot of money at their disposal. And part of that was because they, Marie and Pierre never patented their, uh, the way that they produced radium. Why was that? They always said that they um, never believed in that, that anything they discovered, they felt like other scientists should take that knowledge and use it to make their own discoveries. They didn't feel like they should, you know, guard anything um, that, that science, all the discoveries that they made should be open and freely available to anybody who wanted the information. And as a result of that, they were, I mean, even Marie Curie later in life admitted that maybe they made a mistake because they... They didn't have any money. Marie Curie did not have a lot of money to pass on to her two daughters. You know, people were quite surprised. Uh, Missy, the journalist, when she visited her in Paris, you know, uh, she had no staff. Marie Curie answered her own door. She got her own food. She, despite her stature, she, uh, you know, had no one cleaning her house, <laughs> nothing like that, which, you know, people were quite surprised. She lived very a very humble life and always had. Her father raised her that way. Uh, she uh, had to serve as a nanny when she was a teenager to try to earn some money to go to university. Um, you know, she was not a woman who ever had any money and um, lived quite humbly her entire life. This is Science for the People. I'm here with Shelley Emling, author of the new book, Marie Curie and Her Daughters, The Private Lives of Science's First Family. Okay, so Marie Curie and uh, her research is kind of 
unfortunately interrupted, and also her work on uh, fundraising for the Radium Society or the Radium Institute, sorry, in France is interrupted by uh, World War One. Right. Um, and she actually played a pretty significant role in areas of World War One. And one of the things she was responsible for was actually getting France's supply of radium to safety at the onset of war. What happened there? Uh, she was. She, um, I think she did safeguard the radium with the help of uh, her son-in-law at the time. Um, well, it was actually the son-in-law who played a huge role in that, in making sure that the Germans never found that radium and got their hands on it. Um, what her role was primarily, what she did during that war, was take her and her daughter went out to the front, to the battlefield, and used x-rays. They created, Marie Curie was the one who created these portable x-ray machines where they would take them out in vehicles and go to the doctors on the in the battlefield and x-ray uh, the soldiers so the doctors knew what they were operating on and what to do. And, you know, that was a, actually, that was another reason Americans admired her so much, because she did so much during the war for the soldiers and really, you know, left her her research behind and went out and risked her own life and took Irene, her daughter, with her, and they managed to do quite a bit for the soldiers on the battlefield. And how old was Irene at this time? She was a t- uh, teenager at this time. She was around 17, 19 years old, I think. And uh, my understanding is that Irene actually didn't stick close to Marie's side the whole time. She went out on her own and did a lot of amazing things really close to battles. She did. She, um, you know, her mother trained her and um, Irene was very independent and she was very smart and she was very math and science oriented, just like Marie. And as soon as, soon as she learned what to do, she took off uh, on her own and and did a lot of the x-raying of the soldiers by herself and went into some very dangerous spots. So let's talk a little bit about Eve. Now, Eve was never really a scientist. And as you mentioned before, there are a ton of scientists in this family. We've got Marie and her husband, Pierre. We've got Irene and her husband, Frederick. Um, I believe both Irene's children ultimately went in to pursue uh, professional careers in science. And then we have... Eve, sort of, I don't want to say black sheep of the family, but she she does stand out as someone who didn't uh, have the same love of science that everybody else did. And yet she did go on to be really successful in her own way. Yeah, I don't know why she never picked up on science. It's it's like I, I have three children of my own, and they all have various interests, so you never can predict how children are going, going to turn out. But Eve, um, you know, always shied away from science. She never... Uh, you know, was interested in math, anything like that. But she was a very good pianist and a really good writer. And she wrote some books. She was a, a really famous foreign correspondent during the war. And um, there's a part in the book which is actually one of my favorites, but she takes her own tour of the United States, Eve does, and she really speaks out for the cause of Europe and, and tries to push America to get involved in the war at a time when a lot of Americans were skeptical. And she spoke at a lot of women's colleges. She spoke all around the country, this young woman, and, um, you know, really kind of rallied Americans around the cause of, of Europe and getting involved in the war, which I found quite astounding. And she, interestingly enough, she, she was quite a beauty, and she was on the cover of Vogue and various magazines and um Whereas Irene and her mother, Marie, never cared about clothes or fashion or makeup or anything like that. Eve stood out, again, very interested in fashion, very interested in the style of the day. And so when they all, the first time they all went to the United States together, Marie and her two daughters, the photographers zoomed in on Eve because she was you know, stunningly beautiful and 
um, very poised and loved to make small talk. And she was just the complete opposite of Irene and her mother, Marie. Eve, of course, came into her own during the Second World War. Um, yes. But Irene and Frederick were still in France, whereas Eve was sort of traveling around the world, uh, doing a lot of work in America to get them to support the European war effort, and right. also traveling around the world and getting sort of a war correspondence view of what was going on. Irene and Frederick um, stayed in France, and actually Frederick in particular was a huge part of the French resistance. Uh, Irene and Eve went their own ways when it came to politics. And where, whereas Eve was very much aligned with the United States, um, Irene and her husband Frederick were more aligned with Russia at the time. And they made a lot of trips to Moscow. And so they were very different in their political views as well. And they stayed. They wouldn't leave France. I mean, Eve got out and really tried everything she could to persuade them to leave they wouldn't. They wanted to stay in France till the end. And Eve left and went to England and went to the United States. And, uh, yeah, they were very different. And I don't know how uh, Marie Curie's granddaughter had told me that they weren't really that close toward the end um, of their lives. I mean, Irene really did live a very different existence than Eve did. And as you said, they really went their separate ways politically. And Eve ultimately married somebody from the United States and, and moved here permanently. Frederick and Irene had quite the tightrope to walk during the Second World War. They're living in France, which is occupied uh, by the Germans for a huge portion of the war. And Frederick is trying to continue his research, but also they're worried because they can sort of see the future of their atomic research kind of on the horizon. They were at the forefront of atomic research. What was their reaction to the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II? I think they were quite appalled and quite shocked and um, were happy that Marie wasn't there to see it. Um, I don't know what, exactly what their intention was, but it certainly wasn't that. And I think they were quite um, disgusted by what, how it all turned out. And even given that, uh, both of them very much pursued the possibility of, of using nuclear energy. Yes, they were more interested in it. That's why they wanted to use it for energy purposes um, and power purposes, but not for, not for destruction or war purposes. What I found really interesting about Irene Curie is how similar she is to her mother in so many ways, and also how different she is in a lot of ways. She was much, much more political and aware of her place in the politics of the time. Uh, yes, she was. That's one thing about Marie Curie. She was never political. She did not get involved with politics. Um, no matter how many times somebody tried to pressure her to stick up for a certain group or speak out for or be a spokesman for a certain political party. She didn't want any part of that. She was strictly, in, her love was science and science only, and she had no interest in politics whatsoever, where Irene, on the other hand, would speak out. Eve also was very political. Both girls were involved with politics, but um, Marie never was. And yeah, they were very, very different. I mean, they were very close. I have to say Marie and her two daughters, despite Marie, her long working hours and being absent a lot, the three of them were very, very close, but they were extremely different. What is the lasting legacy of the Curie family, do you think? Well, I think even to this day, um, you know, Marie Curie's granddaughter is in her 80s, and she's still a scientist working in France. I'm amazed at how Marie Curie is still, her name is brought up again and again at, you know, girls' schools and universities as an inspiration. And I think that she's still, even all these years later, decades later, is still her legacy is to still inspire young girls to go into math and science and engineering and these sorts of fields and, 
and there's still a huge discrepancy, as you know, between uh, men and women getting PhDs in these different fields. And I, I've talked quite a bit to girls, young girls in high schools and colleges about Marie Curie and, you know, trying to find role models to hold up for girls and some, so they can aspire to be like someone. And even though all these years have passed, you'd think we'd find a few more role models, but Marie Curie is the one whose name is always brought up again and again when we try to inspire younger girls to go into these fields. If you say Marie Curie, somebody may not know exactly what she did, but they've heard the name, and uh, she's the one female scientist that people have, have heard of. Well, Shelley, thanks so much for being on the show and for writing uh, this book that really gives us a glimpse into some of Marie Curie and her family's private life and some of the way they live their life. Oh, great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. If you want to learn more about Shelley Emling and her books, you can find links to her in our show notes on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening to Science for the People. Mm-hmm.